Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into one new story. I'm Aoife Barry, stepping in for Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, the story of the Patrick Nevin case. On Monday of this week, a man named Patrick Nevin was jailed for 12 years for attacking two women in Dublin in 2014. He was found guilty of the rape of one woman and of the sexual assault of the other. The judge, Ms Justice Eileen Creedon, imposed on Nevin a sentence of 14 years for rape, with two years suspended on the condition that he engage in anger management treatment and abstain from using bodybuilding or performance-enhancing substances. She imposed an eight-year sentence for sexual assault, which will run concurrently, and a five-year period of post-release supervision. Nevin's sentence was backdated to 2015, when he went into custody. In each case, Nevin, who's 37, attacked the women the first time he met them, after they'd been chatting on the dating app Tinder and by text. What makes this case even more striking was that Nevin is currently in jail, serving a five and a half year sentence for a sex attack on another woman, which took place during the same 11 day period five years ago as his other two attacks. The facts of this case are disturbing and raise a number of questions. How unusual was this case? How did a change of plea impact the course of the trial? And what can be done to protect users of dating apps from sexual attacks? Joining me in the studio this week to discuss the case and the issues it raises are Declan Brennan, Managing Editor of Court Reporting Service CCC Newark, and Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. You're both very welcome to The Explainer. And before we begin, just to let listeners know, we're going to be discussing a trial that involves rape and sexual assault. Declan, let's start with the case itself. What happened in court on Monday? Well, on Monday, he faced a final sentence for um, the cases that he pleaded guilty to a year ago. So uh, Judge Arlene Creedon uh, looked at the evidence that she'd heard in the last year from um, the detectives involved in the case and uh, the victim impact statements from the two victims, one of whom Nevin raped and the other woman who was sexually assaulted by Nevin five days later after the the first attack. So she summed up this evidence and um, she looked also at uh, any reports which were scant, really, that uh, had been offered to the court by his defence. The defence had asked for a forensic psychological report to be produced, and we can only assume this was duly produced, but it was never offered to the court, so we don't know what was in it. But um, what did happen was a probation services report was opened to the court as well, and all of this information was taken into consideration by Judge Eileen Creedon. Essentially, she summed it up. Uh, she summed up his offending. She said it was callous, complete disregard for these women. She said he was predatory, uh, in fact, in virtue of the fact that he had gone onto this online dating profile where women were, in all innocence, essentially looking. One of these women had said she'd hoped to meet uh, a boyfriend, and um, Judge Arlene Creedon pointed out that going on these dating websites is not uh, consent to rape. Is, is not a license to attack these women. And uh, she said that he had gone about his attacks in a premeditated style. So what we have here basically is we have two women who joined Tinder, connected with Patrick Nevin on Tinder, and then were chatting to him on Tinder and then chatting to him subsequently by text as well. And what was very striking about these two cases, as you heard in court, was that they were very similar in terms of the behaviour of Patrick Nevin towards these women. So do you want to give us a sense of what you heard in court about the similarities of these cases? Yeah. So Nevin, as you said, would he would begin chatting with these women um, very quickly, the conversation would become sexualized, and very, very early on in, in the 
text message exchanges. He would ask them frequently and repeatedly to meet up. And uh, in, of course, obviously, in the cases of both these women, um, they did meet up with him. Nevin said he was later on, he told Gardy that he was uh, he chatting with hundreds of women. Actually, he said he was chatting with thousands of women and he said he'd met hundreds of women that summer, um, bringing some of them to UCD campus where he attacked one woman. Now, with these two women, he, as I said, he did meet them. He part of his modus operandi was then to drive them to he picked them up at their home. Uh, which is significant for the victims. Because uh, that meant he knew where they lived then. That's exactly, yeah. And that that was uh, something that came out in their victim impact reports because it was something, having been attacked by him, um, that really bared on their minds. They were terrified that he would come back. Uh, he knew where they lived. So he would pick them up in his blue BMW and um, drive them basically to a, a remote part. Um, one woman he drove to a remote part of... Um, County Mead, the back road. He said he was, he told her, he pulled up beside this graveyard and told her that he was familiar with the area, that he used to work in County Loud, that he was known in Dundalk. And rather chillingly, he mentioned the IRA and said he was known in Dundalk, but for not good reasons, which was an odd thing to say. Quite uh, disturbing things to be hearing, I'd imagine. Yeah. For the women were probably saying in court, I'd imagine that that was disturbing for them to hear those kind of details. He's an intelligent man. He has a degree in computer programming. He knows very much what he's doing and what he's saying. Uh, my sense of it is, and this is my opinion, is that he was dropping these things in to create a sense of atmosphere, uh, an atmosphere of fear. Uh, uh, the judge, Judge Creedon, mentioned that, you know, having driven these women to these secluded spots uh, increased their vulnerability. So they didn't know where they were. He knew where they were. Um, having said the IRA comment, he, he said to one woman, that, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you here which again is just a chilling thing to say. There was some consensual sex with one of the women in, in this in one of the cases, uh, but uh, very quickly she said um, that uh, she didn't want to proceed with any further sexual interaction and his mood changed. And that was an, another notable fact in, in all of the attacks that his mood would change very, very quickly from being uh, very pleasant, uh, engaging, charming, it must be said, uh, and um, to one of just fierce anger um, and fury, uh, he would start cursing at these women and essentially then force himself on them. Part of one of the attacks on one of the women was actually recorded on Patrick Nevin's phone. Was that played for you in court or did you get to hear it? It wasn't played for us, um, but uh, there, were, there was a transcript of the recording, which was produced by Sergeant Selina Proudfoot, who was the investigator in that case and she noted that and this that transcript was given into court she noted the number of times that the woman in that case had said no to him said just the words no was notable was noteworthy and and um the fact of that recording was made known to the victim uh, by nevin again another chilling twist really because in order to, why would he do that i mean uh, essentially it was it seems to me there was uh, a sense of intimidation she and that's and that was her natural response she worried that where is this recording going to end up so he had this dropped her back to her home having been attacked by him um as a result of the attack by him she had a panic attack she went to lean out the car in order to get some breath and uh, he still held on to her arm and once she managed to uh, compose herself pulled her back in and continued to attack her can you tell us about what you learned in court about who patrick nevin is 
Yeah, so I've been following this case for two years now and really Nevin remains somewhat still of a mystery. Um, what we do know about him is that he has a history of violence. Um, he he grew up in Dublin. Um, in 1981 he was born and in Dublin and uh, uh, in his uh, childhood his parents uh, separated uh, his mother is his mother is it would be somebody that people would know from previous reporting as yes. well. Do you want to just br- very briefly yes, tell us who yes, his mother is? Quite bizarre in a bizarre um, connection. His mother Cynthia Owens was um, at the centre was the victim of uh, what was came to be known as the Dawkey House of Horrors. So she was a victim of child abuse. And she's gone on and came out and said that um, since Nevin was convicted, that this this uh, horrible background to her family life. So her childhood should not be used as any um, mitigation or any um, defence for his behaviour. Um, so back to his childhood, they split up. Uh, uh, Nevin went uh, to Denmark with his father. And uh, we've heard from his lawyers that this was described as a dysfunctional family background. Um, in Denmark, um, clearly this dysfunctionality uh, was uh, pressing down on Nevin because uh, in his teenage years, his he first came into contact with the criminal justice system uh, when he attacked a man during a neo-Nazi rally. Um, he then um, later on, while still in Denmark, he attacked, sexually assaulted the mother of a friend of his. Now he's imprisoned for this, but for a short period, due to his uh, youth and the fact that he agreed to leave the country, he was sent back to Ireland. Um, and settled back in Dublin. Um, and Again, uh, he gets involved with the criminal justice system here. Very quickly, yes. Um, I mean, he met a woman. Uh, they started a relationship. They were living and working together in Dublin. And one night, Nevin, basically, what we do know, what we also know about him is that he's got a short fuse. He's got a bad temper. And he lost his temper with uh, his partner then and uh, stormed out of the pub they were in, went home. And when she came, she uh, stayed on and arrived home a little later. And she was met with the, what I can only imagine is a horrific sight of uh, her two dogs laying slain on the floor. He, Nevin had uh, killed them. And then he quickly started beating her up in a savage uh, and prolonged attack. Um, the judge uh, at that time, this is back in uh, 2001, said that he had no doubt that Nevin was going to kill the, his partner and he sentenced him to seven years. So Nevin did that time. On Monday, we heard that he, he needs to go and do anger management. We also heard that he's got a hostility to women. This was drawn out in the probation services report uh, and that he's got a preoccupation with sex and uses sex as an emotional coping mechanism. Clearly a dangerous man, uh, at a high risk of reoffending, and obviously uh, the structured sentence that he was given on Monday, there is a hope by the courts at least that this this sentence and the the regime that he must undergo in terms of programs uh, around offence behaviour will will change him, but uh, that remains to be seen. And we know that as part of the sentencing on the when he was sentenced to fourteen years for rape. One of the conditions as well, it was two years suspended on a number of conditions. And one of the conditions was that he abstained from using bodybuilding or performance enhancing substances. Was there any reasons given in court as to why this is one of the conditions attached to that suspended part of that sentence? Well, there wasn't because the probation services report wasn't uh, given to the media, even though everybody in the courtroom uh, had a copy of it. 
but uh, and this was something that the judge was relying on. But uh, what we do know about him is that. Uh, He's a fit man. He's a strong man. Uh, he certainly, you know, your listeners may have seen pictures of him online uh, that he was using on his profile. He's bulked up and uh, some of the victims remarked on how he was very strong. One said that she feared she was going to die during the, t- the attack because he had the strength to do that. And that's one of the really striking things about this case as well, is that the women who gave evidence on court had very strong things to say about what they experienced. Were there any victim impact statements or was everything we heard from them during evidence that they were giving in court? So one of the women read out her own victim impact statement. Uh, This was the victim of the July 12th attack. Um, She said she was terrified. She said that was actually an understatement. And she said she was convinced that Nevin was going to leave her for dead beside this old graveyard. Um, and she said that has left uh, an indelible mark on her. It's uh, changed her life, changed the life of her son as well, because she has a young son and it's changed the way she um, mothers him. Uh, she went from being a happy, outgoing mother to someone that um, has been deeply affected by this. She says she's now a scared, sad, suicidal and depressed mother. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, I noticed when this when she was reading these remarks, particularly about her mothering being affected by his attack, Nevin appeared to become quite upset during those comments. Um, we didn't hear the victim impact statement from the other woman, uh, but the judge noted that it had uh, obviously a serious effect on her and uh, S- Sergeant uh, Selina Proudfoot, the investigating guard in her case, said that um, this, is, this is something that has affected her immensely. And the women appeared in court or were the statements all read out? So they all appeared in court they, before? They were in, they were in court, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the victim of the attack in uh, UCD campus, the Brazilian woman, had flown over for the other trial in which she was going to give evidence in support, as it were, of the other women uh, she'd flown from Brazil. And this is what led to his guilty verdict, the fact that the jury were going to hear evidence from all three of these women uh, culminated in his his guilty plea and in one day sentence. And what was particularly interesting about this case was that you're getting all of these details about, you know, these horrific attacks that were carried out. But there was there was kind of legal issues in, in the background in terms of naming Patrick Nevin and um, when or if the media could name him at all. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And I suppose the the difficulties that there were around whether or not when you're filing your court reports that we'd be carrying on the journal.ie, whether you could put Patrick Nevin's name in it to be published. Yeah, well, there's a, there were a number of issues around the reporting of these cases. Uh, the cases first came to the courts uh, for trial in May 2017. And during that case, um, there was an application to pull down any information about the previous uh, convictions that Nevin has, and we might go into that later. Uh, Suffice to say, he's got a conviction for a very serious assault on a former girlfriend from 2001. And this was widely reported and still is up there and uh, online and and was online at the time. His lawyers wanted that pulled down again later on, then when he was actually convicted of uh, an attack on a Brazilian student in at UCD campus, which was an earlier conviction than the one uh, than the ones from Monday. And that was the one that he was in jail. He's serving that five and a half year sentence for that attack at the same time that he was then in court for the two that he was found guilty of. Yes. On Monday. Yes. So at that trial, um, 
Judge Cormac Quinn ruled um, on foot of an application that he, the media couldn't name him. Now, there's an interesting discrepancy in the law here where uh, somebody charged with sexual assault, a man charged with sexual assault who has no um, connection with the complainant so that naming him won't identify the complainant, they can be named, whereas a man charged with rape can't be named until he's convicted. So we were saying, look, that's the law. It's a strange anomaly, it must be said, but that's the law. And the media were saying we should be entitled to name him. Judge Cormac Quinn placed a gagging order on us for naming him during the trial. There was also an application then to pull down, the, again, these previous reports for that trial. The media complied with that. And so there was a sense of um, disgruntlement uh, when uh, having been convicted then after that trial and the media having complied with these orders to pull down the previous reporting, which they didn't have to, there were more requests than orders, um, very much so, from the DPP. Uh, then when he was convicted, we were then still told he can't be named. And the, the reason was changed then at this point, and it was, uh, it was said that it's because he's got these upcoming trials. Now, so RTE sent in lawyers to uh, fight this application and um, the Irish Times then later on sent in lawyers to fight the application later on when it went to the central court. So eventually it got to the stage where you were actually allowed to name him and that took, as it sounds like, it took quite a, a bit of a journey for you to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, our the argument from the media's point of view was that, uh, yes, obviously there's um, sympathy for the fact that there are other victims who are, w are waiting their trial and... Uh, trials might have to be put out, put back a little further down the line if he's been named to allow for what's called a cooling off period. But at the same time, our argument was that this is um, the perfect example of a case that needs to be run in public because there's a necessity for the public to know what this man looks like and what, what, what his name is, for just for women out there. And for anyone who potentially may have met him and may have even have been a victim and hasn't come forward, so ultimately, what happened was in the High Court, uh, Judge Arlene Creedon, who sentenced him on Monday, said that, to paraphrase what she said, you guys, you need to get real. You, there's information about him online, but juries can be relied on. So um, again, they were looking for all this information to be pulled down off the internet in advance of the trial. This is before he pleaded guilty. And uh, she said to them, look, uh, in this day and age, there's going to be information online, but juries can be told to ignore it. So what's interesting about this case also is that Patrick Nevin changed his plea at one point. Can you tell me at what at what point he changed his plea and how that impacted then on the case going forward? Now, again, it is kind of complicated because you do have a number of cases happening at the same time. So can you tell us a bit about how that all worked? In, in the case that we heard about on Monday, initially, about a year ago, the prosecution brought this case to the to the High Court, and they were essentially trying to prosecute Nevin for rape of one of these women. So this was just one of three attacks that occurred in 11 days. But in a novel application to the court, the prosecution asked the judge for, to allow them to bring in the allegations of the other women, despite the fact that the only offence before the jury was going to be the rape offence. They were asking the judge to allow the jury to hear these allegations of other attacks on other women uh, so the jury could consider the allegation of rape in the context of similar type behaviour. Uh, so th essentially this was the modus operandi being drawn out. Normally so you c the jury can't be told about other offending by someone who's up on an offence um, fighting that, that charge but 
it can be when there's uh, an inherent probability that those allegations um, couldn't couldn't just be coincidental. So she ruled that look, this was the case. Look, there's 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 no way. Uh, there certainly there's a improbability that th- these things could have been made up. That these allegations could all take place within three days and. Um, that the jury needed to hear this. It was a common sense ruling. And Nolene Blackwell, moving to yourself, mm. what's the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's viewpoint on this particular case? Because as we've heard, there's many shocking details on it. It's a kind of case we haven't really heard about probably ever before, given the fact that it involves a dating app um, and the sentencing was very interesting as well. What is your viewpoint in, in the I, Dublin Rape I Crisis Centre? I think Center? certainly this is the most high profile that involves the dating app. I think there are more cases coming up where people are meeting online. But in relation to this case where Patrick Nevin has been now sentenced. First of all, the sentence does reflect the fact that it was seen as a very serious set of crimes by by the court. Uh, and, and that sentence of 14 years with the last two years suspended is at the higher end of what we know about sentences for rape in Ireland. Having said that, the, the context um, and the way that the person was subject to, de- the, the victim was subject to deceit as well as to the most vicious physical attacks means that 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 looks like a, a correct application of the law. I would always say in relation to sentencing, we don't know enough about how it happens in Ireland. We don't know what the judge takes into account. I think it's also interesting, the last two years suspended on provisions, um, provided that he does anger management, provided that he stays away from bodybuilding substances, both of them difficult to actually enforce uh, in in the world that we live in. But presumably it is possible. Uh, And it is important to realise that in the system we have, this man is likely to come out and come back into the community. And particularly where he can now come back into an online community, because the real issue in relation to meeting people online, be it through dating apps or otherwise, is that terrible sense of anonymity, the sense in which um, people are taking additional risks to risks they knew about before. Because I was going to ask, then my next question was going to be related to that. It's very easy to say, you know, don't go on sites like Tinder if you don't want people to be attacking you. But really, are dating apps making things any more dangerous for people or are they just another means for somebody who might want to target somebody anyway? I think dating apps are another means, but they're not just another means of meeting people. The truth is, before there were dating apps, before there was online, people would take a chance on someone they met, you know, in a club mm. or at a, an event or something. Uh, and but you would you would see the per- you would know the person you were seeing before you. I think there is something around the dating apps that we have to take into account. They're all commercial operations. They're all there not to help people find love as much as to make money. And, and their way of getting people to make money is to stay online, to do more online and to uh, put as few obstacles in people's way for sharing information as possible. That means that the dating apps, in truth, accept very limited information from people. You don't have to give your full name. You don't have to give your correct name. You don't have to give your correct photograph. Um, and and in some ways, everyone is told, here are certain risks you take when you go online. But there is something about the fact that with a dating app, 
and indeed with social media in general, you can end up with somebody whose name you cannot even find at the end of the operation. I do think there's great credit to the investigators and the prosecutors in this case who did join up the dots uh, to an extent to find a way of operating by Mr Nevin. So there are uh, always risks with going out with someone you don't know. I think dating apps and other online ways add to those risks and people have to be aware of them. But it also allows grooming and perversion and predatory behaviour to happen. Nolan's using the word grooming there and I think in this case there was a sense of that. I mean, uh, in many ways, as you said, Aoife, yes, it's just another means. It's it's no different to the nightclub where someone is going to meet someone and if they have this intention to bring them uh, to a secluded spot and, and attack them, they will do that. But as you said, there's a numbers, it's a, it's a, there's a factor of numbers here. So uh, Nevin said that he was meeting thousands of women. So there's a sense that he's really prowling this and yeah. checking the numbers and and watching for the vulnerable women, the women and who are maybe somewhat more um, uh, susceptible to his type of um, um, seduction, if you want to put it like that, but uh, his, his prowling and grooming in some ways. Now, Tinder has been approached to, about this case, obviously, because so many headlines mentioned Tinder in it. You couldn't escape the fact that the app was connected to the case. And Tinder said it was truly shocked and saddened. It also said it would take part in any uh, guard investigations that were taking place. And the spokesperson also said that it basically it spent millions on a series of review tools to remove what they called bad actors yeah. from the app. Nolene, do you think that that is enough? Is there more that needs to be done? So I actually think about all social media in in general and these dating apps in particular, where you can go on with a fake profile and a fake identity, you, you are not going to be able to deal with the problem. One of the key things that will have to happen, and it will happen over time, I'm absolutely satisfied, is that there will be some verification of people who go on so that at the very least, somebody can go back and find the original um, perpetrator of the poor behaviour. Now, just to say Tinder and other dating apps are part of our lives right now. And, and an awful lot of people have uh, have a happy time in it. In the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, we tend to see the people who are, well, we're only going to see the people who are assaulted and harmed and hurt. And I think in some ways, one of the things that the Nevin case has shown is that it is possible. I remember one of the uh, lines of evidence of one of the witnesses who was being pressed by the uh, defence team, I think, was she was asked why she did something or other. And she said, because I was stupid. And I just think it's really important to recognise that, in fact, the person who is stupid is the person who is carrying out the criminal behaviour. People go on in good faith. People connect with people and link up with them in good faith. And it's really important to understand that, as the judge said, that is not an invitation to be assaulted or raped. So if this case brings about a situation where more people recognise that assaults which happen as a result of going online with somebody is still an assault and reality and that it can be reported and investigated, then that will also have been a good 
good outcome from the case. And finally, do you think that you will see more people coming forward to speak about their own experiences, perhaps yourself or to um, the Gardaí that might be similar to this case or that might be yeah. just, you know, it's sexual assault or rape cases that people might be more willing to come forward when they see a very high profile case like this resulting in somebody being sentenced and going to jail? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part will be to be absolutely satisfied that if they do report it, uh, that they will get um, the kind of professional investigation that they're entitled to expect. I think there's an awful lot of work still to be done in the Gardaí to ensure a consistent experience when people go into a Garda station. Um, and there's always going to be risks around the prosecution of these cases as well. And prosecutors and, and judges need to be well alerted to the ways in which people are meeting up right now. Um, there, I think we will probably see certainly an increase in the people contacting us because we have a non-judgmental and, and confidential phone line. We run that on behalf of the entire country. So like people can disclose it and just identify. But but it in some ways, what's happening online is what happens offline as well, that people are starting to say to the victim, why did you engage in the risky behaviour instead of pointing to why did you carry out that assault to the perpetrator? And I think what mm. the Nevin case does do is show that the Gardaí and the prosecutors can bring these cases to court successfully and can ensure that justice is done in those cases. And it's a step forward because we live in a world where more and more contact is happening online and and where the dangers of online behaviour need to be addressed. More resources needed in that area, but at least this is one step forward. And that seems like a good place to leave it. Thanks both of you very much for coming into studio this week in The Explainer and talking to us about this case. Now, if you've been affected by any of the issues that we discussed on this episode of The Explainer, you can contact the Rape Crisis Centre on its helpline, which is 1-800-77-8888. This episode was produced by me, Aoife Barry, with executive producer Christine Bowen and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. We'll be back next week with a brand new topic. If there's anything in the news you'd like us to cover, let us know. Email us at podcasts at thejournal.ie or tweet us at at thejournal underscore IE. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is the single biggest thing you can do to help other people find this podcast. Thank you and catch you next time. <laughs>